0: Section eighteen of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eighteen: Delhi Justice. Governor Silas Wright gave his approval to even more flagrant breaches of judicial integrity in Delhi. Word went out from Albany: "Down with the anti renters or Cato Falls!" and on the slightest pretext tenants were charged with crimes they could not have committed. One Democratic newspaper urged the authorities to let the anti-renters hang. The loss of their lives was of little consequence compared with the public interest at stake. Another suggested that troops proceed in open day and take away anti-rent wives and children to a place of security, drive away their cattle, and destroy their farming implements. It is useless to expect that these men will ever be put down by force of shot and cannonball. One of the grimmest songs of the entire anti-rent movement grew out of the terrorism in Delhi. Written by Forrest Minstrel and first published in Young America on November twenty-second, 1845, the song gained wide circulation because it expressed so well the temper of the aroused farmers. Those who wish to seize the store of the injured laboring poor, crush them so they rise no more, haste to Delhi. Ye whose hearts are dark and fell, ye who affidavits sell, Tory lords will pay you well in old Delhi. Justice with her blinded sight might have stumbled on the right, but she's fairly to her flight from old Delhi. Ye who wish to fill your fob, join the law and order mob, you may get a dandy job at Old Delhi. It's for this the Delhi folks Wear their law and order cloaks, Make your courts of law a hoax, In Old Delhi. You who would your country save, Dare to claim what Heaven gave, Dare the Inquisition brave, Fear not Delhi. Nothing fear, your cause is just. Better days will come, we trust. Tyrants yet will bite the dust, In Old Delhi. The prisoners who had been seized after the death of Osmond Steele were examined by Justice of the Peace Nathaniel Hathaway, brother of the landlord agent, and then referred to Judge N. K. Wheeler of Delhi, who summoned a grand jury headed by John Edgerton, a near relative of Erastus Edgerton, the incautious deputy who had started the shooting, One of Brisbane's long letters described his hearing, which was held one evening, shortly after he and his fellow prisoners had finished singing their evening hymn. I was taken into a room dimly lighted. A number of men were sitting around in it, while in the centre was placed a table. By it sat a man, bald-headed, with one of the most sensual-looking countenances I have ever gazed upon in my life. This man rose slowly from his seat— lifted a little book from the table, and thrust it in my face. I started back and asked where I was, if I was before the grand jury or not. Some of them said I was before the grand jury. I then said that when I took an oath I swore with uplifted hand. During this conversation the bald-headed man had said something and threw the book down again. So whether I was sworn or not I cannot tell you, and whether the book was Robinson Crusoe or the Holy Bible, I cannot tell. The principal question that Judge Edgerton asked Brisbane was, Did you hear Steele say he fired or not? The young Scot said that he did. Did he not say, pursued the bald-headed man, that he believed he had fired? No, sir, he said very plainly and distinctly, Yes, I fired. You villain! You are the only man out of twenty that has sworn to such an oath. Brisbane said that he had perhaps had the best opportunity of any man there to hear what Steele said, as he had his left arm under the dying man's head at that moment, having just given him a drink. As he turned to leave the room, he remarked, Gentlemen, if I have to be punished, it must be for what I have said, not for what I have done. You, villain, the questioner repeated, we will let you know what you have said." Brisbane had spoken more truly than he knew, for he was promptly indicted for the murder of Osmond Steele, on nothing more than the sworn statement of a neighbor, James Glendenning, that Brisbane had declared that Steele would be shot if he went to the Earl's sale. Afterward Brisbane remembered, with some chagrin, how friendly he had been with the man one day before the sale, GLEN HAD COME TO HIM IN THE hayfield AND SUGGESTED THAT HE HAD ENOUGH HAY DOWN IN SUCH BAD WEATHER AND OUGHT TO STEP OVER THE FENCE AND PICK A FEW BERRIES. BRISBANE'S ACCOUNT WAS AS FOLLOWS. I DID SO. WE THEN RALLIED EACH OTHER ABOUT OUR PRINCIPLES, HE BEING UPRENT AND I DOWNRENT. AS I AM NATURALLY PRETTY FREE-SPOKEN AND WAS NOT DREAMING OF ANYTHING WRONG, AND LIKEWISE BEING GOOD NEIGHBORS, I LAUGHED AND JESTED WITH HIM till one of my girls called to come to dinner. We went and took dinner together, little thinking I was eating with a man who was soon to do his best to bring me to an ignominious death. I never thought seriously of our conversation till he was leaving the house. As he went away, he suddenly turned back as if he had forgotten something. "'Bill,' said he, "'if you know any Indians that want to buy any lead for balls, "'I have got a chunk that I melted down from tea-chest linings,' and I will sell it to them cheaper than they can buy it anywhere else. I told him I did not know of any Indians who wanted to buy any. He then looked disappointed and went away. I then remembered that he had said to me while sitting on the log that he had come to cut some broomsticks in my woods, but as I had seen no axe, his visit then appeared to me to be rather mysterious. But what I chiefly find fault with Glendenning is that he did not speak the whole truth. Why did he not state that he had offered to sell lead to the Indians, and that I had told him that I knew of no Indians who wanted to buy any? His whole visit, therefore, appears to me to have partaken of the despised character of a spy, and to sit down and eat with an unsuspecting neighbor, how like a Judas! But perhaps the cold and unfeeling character of Glendening cannot be better depicted than the following little incident portrays it. He one day asked one of my little girls to turn the grindstone for him. The child simply remarked that the stone would not turn for a Tory, upon which he asked her how would she like to see her father hanging by the neck. When Dr. Calhoun's turn came, he was subjected to five hours of abusive epithets. Among other things, I was called a liar repeatedly, he reported, and to crown it all I was honored with the appellation of being a damned little positive paddy. Calhoun at first thought an uncommon share of attention was being showered upon him, but a young lady called as a witness informed him that these epithets and many more were also tendered to her. Others were shamefully abused. Daniel Squires returned to the shelf in his cell, and recorded in his diary— I was taken before the grand jury who reported what I swore to being different from what I actually swore to, being also untrue. Squires, too, was indicted for the murder of Steele, although he was at that time many miles away from the Moses Earl farm. In all, more than two hundred were indicted, nearly one hundred specifically for murdering Steele. The grand jury was still handing down indictments and state troops were still bringing in anti-renters when Circuit Judge Amasa J. Parker arrived in Delhi to conduct the trial. Because Judge Parker had favored the tenants' objectives during Silas Wright's 1844 campaign and had handled Dr. Boughton's first trial with less partiality than Judge Edmonds had shown in the second, The anti-renters were inclined to forget that he was a political friend of Wright, and a nephew of the Colonel Parker who had berated Brisbane for his influence with the tenants, and that he had yielded to pressure in sidestepping the issue of bail for Dr. Boughton. Having previously elected him to the Assembly and to Congress, the farmers still respected him for soundness of mind, purity of intentions, and permanency of opinion— on September twenty-second, 1845, when he addressed the jury, the farmers found their confidence in him had been misplaced. Judge Parker's words were bitter. Conforming to current democratic policy, he went beyond the immediate issue of the Dingle Hill riot to attack the whole anti-rent organization. Only a year ago, he said, he had found the county flourishing even under the leasehold system and no county had gone forward more rapidly in the acquisition of wealth and social happiness. He deplored that now, although Heaven has contributed the blessings of labor upon the husbandmen, the crops had gone unharvested, and the husbandmen had been led to crime by lecturers from abroad. He praised the promptness with which people had come forward to enforce the law after the death of Steele; He found it gratifying that the press generally had been on the side of government, of law and order. But, said he, since the press was a powerful engine for good or evil, it was the jury's duty to indict any paper in which they discovered any evidence of licentiousness, of publications not true, incendiary and inflammatory in their character, and intended to stir up sedition." Judge Parker reviewed the history of the anti-rent agitation and concluded that it was as necessary to the tenant as to the landowner that titles which had been held for a long time should not be disturbed. Vested rights could not be infringed on, and the issue could be settled only by compromise, by purchase, or by arrangement. Giving the prisoners no hope of clemency, he addressed the jury as men he had known for years— and told them it could not be expected that the sympathy of an honest community would be extended to those who had violated the laws and arrayed themselves against the very government under which they lived. The first of the Delhi prisoners to face trial was John Van Steenberg of Bryant Hollow, who had been at the Earl Sale in disguise. Only twenty-one, though he already had a rugged growth of whiskers, he was an uneducated product of leasehold privation, but honest and hard-working. In joining the Indians, he had merely followed the lead of his lively neighbor, Edward O'Connor. John Steele, a brother of the slain man and district attorney of Otsego County, was brought on to assist the prosecution. It was well known that he welcomed a chance to avenge his brother's death. Van Steenberg's counsel struggled to get a fair trial, even going so far as to call in Stanley Grimes, a celebrated phrenologist, to help pick the jurors by examining their faces and the bumps on their craniums. But the choice was considerably narrowed by the fact that Judge Parker, like his old teacher Judge Edmonds, ruled out anyone who had any interest in leased land. In the end, with the exception of one known uprenter from Delhi, the jurors were all drawn from unaffected towns which had supported law-and-order meetings and furnished men for Judge Moore's posse. Reporters wrote confidently to their papers that the jury would convict, which, said one, was as it should be. Thomas De Vere sent a bitter message to Governor Wright, protesting that the judge's ruling on jurors' qualifications amounted to a denial of elementary justice— as it was made at a time when it was admitted that there was no neutrality in the county, every man having in the rush of excitement taken sides, strongly, decidedly, if not with the anti-renters, then against them. He charged that two jurors had publicly revealed their prejudice. If those two men had expressed themselves as prepossessed in favor of the prisoners, as they did prejudice against them, think you they would have been suffered to go on the jury?' And if this be so, and a knowledge of the fact goes abroad among the people, will it not tend to bring the administration of law into contempt? Silas Wright should reflect, De Vere warned. Ask yourself, are you quite sure? Are there no misgivings in your mind, but that those unfortunate prisoners will get an impartial trial? If you can answer this question to the satisfaction of your own heart, go to bed and repose in quietness, But if there is a doubt in your mind that intemperance has existed in Delaware County ever since the unhappy death of Steele, if you think it probable that the intemperance should get into the jury-box, that wrong may be done to the prisoners, then you ought to take some measure to prevent that wrong. The world will remember, and what is worse, your own conscience will remember, that this wrong was done to citizens in jeopardy of their lives, whilst Silas Wright was governor." If Wright was at all moved by this communication, he gave no sign, and the trial proceeded without interference. The prosecution's chief witnesses were backsliding anti-renters. Daniel Northrup, a torpid, sluggish-looking person who was also under indictment, testified that on leaving the sale he had remarked to John Van Steenberg that the death of Steele was an awful thing. John made no immediate reply, he said, but put his finger on the mouth of his rifle, tapped it several times, and observed death was just what Steele deserved. Defense counsel attacked Northrup, as notorious in all this anti-rent war, an informant, a confessed murderer, swearing to hang others to save himself. But the prosecution produced another turncoat, who said that after the first volley at the riot, he had heard Van Steenberg ask for a small ramrod to reload his rifle. As in Hudson, the trial had an incongruous social aspect. On the final day, reported the Herald correspondent, the courtroom door opened, and a brilliant array of beauty, grace, and loveliness entered the hall where justice sat enthroned in Her Majesty. Old Delaware's fairest daughters, with hearts full of sympathy and affection, had congregated in her courthouse to witness the trial of one of her sons, The hitherto downcast face of the prisoner seemed to brighten with hope, as he gasped in astonishment at this sudden display of loveliness. The handsome features of the presiding judge were wreathed with smiles, as each blossoming hebe and simple maid of nature took her seat. Under the eyes of these bells of Delhi, Judge Parker performed a remarkable feat. His charge to the jury presented them with a chain of selective reasoning that doomed Van Steenberg in advance and left the jurors so dazed as to be practically incapable of an honest decision. He reasoned that any man, armed and disguised at the sale, was liable to a year in prison under Silas Wright's anti-disguise law. The law defined this offense as a misdemeanor, but under existing statutes any crime punishable by imprisonment in a state prison was a felony, and any death resulting from the commission of a felony was murder." all two hundred and fifty Indians present at the sale were therefore guilty of murder. The jury had only one task, the judge explained, and that was to decide whether John Van Steenberg had been at the sale armed and disguised. Mercy has nothing to do with the jury box, he said. After being out all night, the jury returned to the courtroom to ask Judge Parker whether a person being at the Earl's sale, disguised and armed, but not having fired, was guilty of a felony. That was the law," the judge reiterated. John Van Steenberg was therefore convicted of murder. But even this uprent jury felt that there was some miscarriage of justice, for they immediately appealed to Governor Wright. The undersigned members of the jury of John Van Steenburgh, convicted as one of the murderers of Osmond N. Steele, do respectfully recommend him as a fit subject for your clemency. Although this petition was signed by all twelve, the governor did not reply. The prosecutors may have felt some misgivings, for the next case was handled differently. The defendant was William Brisbane, I was taken from my cell, he wrote, and brought before the American Jeffreys, Judge Parker. This was at 9 a.m., and the judge ordered him to be ready to go on trial at 2 p.m. Thus, observed Brisbane, five hours was allowed me to subpoena my witnesses and prepare for trial. The Herald reporter noted Brisbane's appearance as he received the order. This is the noblest Roman of them all. He looked, indeed, the hero— Erect, proud, and undaunted, his eyes flashed with indignation like an imprisoned eagle's. When the court asked if he had counsel, he drew himself up proudly to his full height, looked the judge boldly and sternly in the face, and with firm tone and a broad Scotch accent inquired, "'How am I to obtain counsel or anything else while cooped up in yonder jail?' Before afternoon, however, Brisbane succeeded in retaining Samuel Gordon— and Colonel Parker, the judge's uncle. In the meantime, Judge Parker had called together the counsel for both sides, and reminded them that nearly one hundred men were under indictment for murder. If they were convicted, all would be hanged. He did not wish to hang so many men, he said. All the sympathies of our nature revolt at the idea of wholesale slaughter." Inasmuch as the law did not require a full example to be made of all indicted for murder, he was ready to receive pleas of guilty to manslaughter. He asked the authorities to put an end to further arrests, and urged the council for the prisoners to plead them guilty. Such a compromise would save the farmers from death, he explained, and save the state from extended time and expense. So it happened that when Brisbane was summoned at two o'clock— His attorneys took him not to the courtroom for trial, but into one of the jury rooms, where they told him they had had a conversation with the judge, who would accept a plea of guilty for manslaughter. Otherwise he would be tried for murder and surely be hanged. "'Gentlemen,' said Brisbane, "'I am guilty of neither.' "'We believe that,' said his lawyers. "'But,' Samuel Gordon added, "'the state could prove that you addressed the Indians and that you helped to disguise them.' These things are false, the Scot insisted, and I can prove them false. Brisbane, said Gordon, it is no use what you can prove. It will not be believed. What is the punishment for manslaughter? Four years the least, seven the most. Brisbane wrote of a moment's indecision. I then began to calculate what age I would be at the end of my imprisonment. I thought I might still be of some benefit to my family but to describe my thoughts and feelings as they rushed through my mind and heart is impossible. Be quick, said Gordon, the court's awaiting you. You may lose the favorable moment. Gentlemen, I am in your hands, Brisbane said, so do what seems best to you. They entered his plea of guilty to manslaughter, and a trial was averted. At this stage, triumphant from his conviction of Dr. Boughton in Hudson, John Van Buren arrived in Delhi, He insisted on trying old Moses Earl himself, and at once. He had tasted blood, commented the freeholder, and his appetite was whetted for more. He was eager to pounce upon the victims whom the Delhi hunters had caught and caged for him. Perhaps, too, he remembered that it was a murder trial in Delhi in 1819 that had raised his father to political eminence. Wrath against Earl had not abated, Van Buren was sure he could convict him of murder, but Judge Parker agreed with Mitchell Sanford, chief of the Anti-Rent Council, that at most the aged farmer's only guilt was that he had fed the Indians in the woods, refused to pay rent, and told the landlord's agent he would have to fight for it. The most that Judge Parker could make out of it was a misdemeanor, but Van Buren would not give in. His insistence that conviction was assured— persuaded Sanford to enter a hasty plea of guilty to manslaughter. When the lawyer was criticized by many anti-renters, he told them he was forced to do it to save Earl's life. To the court, however, he expressed himself with courage and vigor. I warn the landlords, he said, that unless they yield to these men their just and equal rights in the spirit of conciliation, kindness, and forbearance, There will come down upon them from these hardy men who have cultivated and subdued these harder hills a storm of indignation that will sweep them away forever. If they will sow dragon's teeth, let them expect to reap a harvest of armed men. Must we forego the sympathies of our nature and forget that we are men? I must confess that my sympathies have been strongly excited by the scenes I have witnessed since I came to this place." and I would despise myself if I could go to yonder pens and see two hundred wretched men whose lives are sought by an excited population—the voice of pity I have not heard, but only the language of denunciation and vengeance. Yes, I would despise myself if I did not sympathize with and pity the aged and widowed mothers of some of these prisoners, who have come twenty miles on foot, without a shilling to pay their expenses, to see their sons in jail awaiting their trial." In a public statement, he went even further in his bitter denunciation of the Delhi court. "'I begin to distrust the justice of my country. Fearful, indeed, are the doings of a mob, but more fearful the administration of criminal justice in the midst of passion, prejudice, and excitement. I had rather risk the mob.' The next day the Albany Argus reported, "'Moses Earl has made his will.' does not expect to receive much leniency, and ought not to. As Edward O'Connor awaited his turn, he watched his friends, one after another, buckle before the ruthless legalized injustice. Hot Irish blood coursed through his veins, and he could not be induced to make a confession of convenience. Although he realized the court and the prosecution were united in political intrigue to break the ranks of the anti-renters, He was told that if he did not plead guilty, he was fit to die, and officials would gladly wade in his blood. Nevertheless, O'Connor insisted upon a trial. The court kept him waiting until the last, probably hoping he would change his mind, but he stood firm. At length, early in October, he got his chance, and the trial was a farce. Judge Parker repeated the legalistic jingo that had convicted John Van Steenberg, Again the jury convicted, and again they appealed to Governor Wright in a petition, which read in part: "The proof was clear and positive that he was not one of those who shot." The Court charged the jury that all the disguised and armed persons, numbering some two hundred forty, who were on the grounds were engaged in a felony and were therefore guilty of murder, and upon that charge we found the prisoner guilty. There was nothing in the evidence to warrant the belief that he had anticipated, encouraged, or approbated the firing on or killing of Steele or anyone else. His character from his youth up was proven to have been good. The evidence that he was among the disguised persons was not positive. Again, there was no immediate reply from the governor. Edward O'Connor's conviction cleared the court calendar— The American Jeffreys had set a record. Nearly 250 cases had been disposed of in three weeks. On Saturday, October eleventh, 1845, he called them up for sentence, one by one. It was a dismal day. All nature seemed to be in mourning, wrote Brisbane. The wind sighed mournfully as it swept the trees. The yellow leaves trembled and fell to the ground. The rain fell in torrents. "'Yes, the very heavens seem to weep over our misfortunes. "'Judge Parker proved as inclement as the weather. "'Young John Van Steenberg came first, and the judge did nothing to temper the shock. "'The court entertains no doubt of your guilt,' he said. "'You have but a short time to live. "'It is not necessary now to admonish you of your relation to your awful situation.' There are others who will see that you have every opportunity to prepare for your final end. It is the judgment of the court that you be taken hence to the place from whence you came, and that on the twenty-ninth day of November you be taken to a place of execution and hung until you are dead. The next was Edward O'Connor, who stood tall and proud before the bench. I have known your family for many years, the judge told him, You are a young man of more intelligence than Van Steenberg. You are young and possessed of abilities, and you have respectable connections. You are therefore less excusable. You are to be cut off in early life, from friends, from kindred, from the world. You have but a few days to live. It is your duty to improve the time and prepare for your death. An awful change awaits you, and we trust you will take advantage of the means in your power to prepare for that change." "'O'Connor heard the sentence without flinching. "'Then he turned and looked out over the packed courtroom. "'Remember, my friends,' he said quietly and proudly, "'I die an innocent man.' "'His eyes were clear and his voice firm, "'but tears stood in the eyes of the spectators. "'Then it was Moses Earle's turn. "'He looked more than his sixty-four years "'and was near the end of endurance "'as he appealed to Judge Parker for mercy.' "'I hope your judge will consider me and do me all the good you can,' he said in a quiet, tired voice, "'and I hope that God in heaven will reward you for it. "'I hope you will try to get me a pardon that I may return to my companion. "'I am an old man.' "'Judge Parker was unmoved. "'He knew Moses Earle was not guilty of murder. "'He had said as much to John Van Buren, "'but there was still the charge of manslaughter, "'for which the maximum sentence could be invoked.' It was the course taken by you that led to the death of Steele, he sternly told the weary old man. We must sentence you to state prison for life. You will therefore be cut off from your family and from society, and the public will hereafter be secured from the presence of one who is guilty of so high a crime. William Brisbane came in for a full share of censure because he was a foreigner. Your whole life could not atone for the injury and injustice you have done to society, Judge Parker declared. Though he gave the young Scot the comparatively mild sentence of seven years in prison, tears rolled down Brisbane's cheeks. He had come to America in search of freedom, but had found it a crime to attack great political power and the wealth that fed it. Not that I feel shame for the country that gave me birth, he said in a letter to Joseph Hogue, no, while the pages of history are adorned with the names of a Wallace, a Burns, and a Scott, I will ever feel proud of my Scottish birth, but it is hard that my foreign birth should militate against me. Political motives were at no time clearer than when the judge sentenced Daniel W. Squires. The young Roxbury farmer had not been at the Earl's Sale, and the previous June the sheriff had not been able to get a grand jury to indict him for being an Indian. "'Now he stood indicted for the murder of Osmond Steele, "'in spite of the fact that his lawyers had entered a plea of guilty against my will. "'There is little doubt that your exertions have contributed in a great degree "'to the murder of Steele,' Judge Parker told him. "'You were a mover and originator of the rebellion, "'and though not legally guilty, you are morally so, "'and the violated laws require that you should be punished with severity.' "'Society will be no more disturbed by your machinations.' Life imprisonment was his sentence. The American Jeffreys' record stood O'Connor and Van Steenburgh sentenced to be hanged, Moses Earl, Daniel W. Squires, Daniel Northrup, and Zara Preston, sentenced to life imprisonment, Calvin Madison, ten years, William Brisbane, John Phoenix, Isaac Burhans, John Birch, William Reside, John Latham, and Charles McCumber, seven years each. William K. Jocelyn, two years. Fifty-one others paid fines ranging from twenty-five to five hundred dollars, or received suspended sentences. The remaining prisoners were released with an admonition to cease their illegal resistance. Moses Earle's neighbor, Justice of the Peace Richard Morse, was never tried on the conspiracy indictment. At the time of his arrest, the New York Herald reporter had commented, "'Nothing is more clear than his connection with the whole escapades of the Indians, and yet I would not hesitate to say that he is so acute, so cunning, and so cool, that he will baffle the whole of his prosecutors and get off with flying colors.' On Morse's own motion, his trial was put off to another term, and then the case was dropped. The New York Herald, with extraordinary obtuseness, spoke of Judge Parker's merciful and manly course in urging Moses Earle and the others to plead guilty. He has done more by this one act to restore peace, quiet, and order to the county than all the bayonets this side of Texas. These signs of mercy will have good effect— and are the best evidence to the anti-renters that the administration of law has no desire to oppress or wrong them. The anti-rent press attacked Judge Parker's conduct of the trials furiously and condemned the political press for its support of him. There is nothing to equal it in this country since the hanging of witches in New England, declared George Evans in Young America, Never, he said, should the wage-earner forget that the newspapers, especially the Herald and the Sun, had the bloodthirsty audacity to approve of the sentences. These base panderers to the money-god have pretended that the sentences would have the effect to quell the anti-rent excitement. Inordinate stupidity! Workingmen, behold the tender mercies of patroon law and landlord judges, and say how long you will groan under despotism— "'before you will use the bloodless but effectual weapon of the ballot to redeem yourself.'" Horace Greeley, who had never before asked a governor to commute a sentence, now appealed to Silas Wright to save Edward O'Connor and John Van Steenburgh. It was not until O'Connor returned to his cell to await death that his bold spirit faltered. Through a small hole in the partition between their cells, William Brisbane watched the young man. He paced his cell with a slow and measured step, his eyes fixed steadily upon the floor, his lips compressed, and every little while a sort of quiver or tremulous motion would play over them. His whole soul seemed to be torn with intense agony. At length Brisbane spoke to him. "'Aren't you in your heart cursing the principles for which you're about to die?' "'No,' said O'Connor thoughtfully." "'Brisbane, I will die true to my principles. "'It is not for myself that I mourn, "'but for her who is dearer to me than life.' "'As the young man thought of his dear Janet Scott, "'his bosom seemed to heave and swell "'almost to the bursting with extreme emotion. "'At length he gave vent to his feelings "'in a flood of tears. "'After this he talked with firmness "'about his approaching fate. "'Nay, he even jested with some of the other prisoners "'with regard to their sentences.' and with Northrop in particular. Northrop was mourning sadly about his hard fate, being sentenced for life. O'Connor playfully asked him if he would trade, and even went so far as to offer to trade even. Northrop gave such a hilarious shake of the head that we all burst out laughing. Brisbane had a heartening visit from his counsel, Colonel Parker, who came to his cell and said, Brisbane, the way you were represented to us when you came here— "We took you to be an incarnate devil, but since we have become acquainted we find you to be a man of very different stamp." "I did my best to get you home with the bill upon your head, but said they "Parker, if you attempt anything like that, by God, we will lynch you," the reply I made was "Lynch and be damned!" Needless to say, however, Brisbane was not released on bail, and the colonel ran no risk. When Daniel Squires returned to his cell after the sentencing, he wrote a farewell letter to his wife. I have been out and heard my sentence from the earthly judge, who, after talking to me about my crimes, said that I must remain in prison all the days of my natural life, which deprives me of all my friends and connections forever. But as long as there is life, there is hope. I expected that when I heard my sentence it would affect me, but it did not." Although some people and the law have called me guilty, still I feel a clear conscience. Therefore I bear my burden with as much fortitude as possible. I wish you to make yourself as comfortable as you can under your circumstances. I am in good spirits, although it looks like a great thing for a man as young as I am to be sentenced off for life. But yet I cannot but think, if I behave myself, I shall see my family— "'Mr. Gould of Roxbury, J. Gould's father, told me to-day if I acted well he thought I would see my family again. "'You must keep up good courage, and not give way to natural affections too much. "'Be careful, and do not mourn for me. I am better off than you are, for I have got someone to take care of me, "'but you have to take care of yourself and the children. And remember that you are not forgotten by me.' I REMAIN YOUR AFFECTIONATE HUSBAND, MY MOTHER'S DUTIFUL SON, AND MY CHILDREN'S FOND FATHER UNTIL DEATH. WITH THIS LETTER, SQUIRES SENT A BRIEF JOURNAL OF HIS DAYS IN Delhi JAIL, AND A POEM FOR HIS WIFE TO KEEP AS A MEMORIAL. FAREWELL, WE PART TO MEET NO MORE, OUR FATES WILL HAVE IT SO, THE DREAM OF FONDEST BLISS IS O'ER, TO DISTANT LANDS I GO. I GO TO SOLITUDE AND THOUGHT a slave to landlord's power, but faith and hope is my support, each passing solemn hour. Ah, cruel fate, it wounds my heart, ah, cruel tyranny! I grieve from cherished friends to part, but mostly love for thee. Alas, alas, when hopes depart and all our prospects die, all that can cheer the mournful heart consists in memory— and you, perchance, may think upon affection's passioned spell, and sometimes, too, of him who now murmurs his last farewell. The next day was Sunday, a melancholy day, and trying to our feelings, for many friends came for farewells. So touching and trying were the scenes, wrote Brisbane, that I was glad when the shades of evening proclaimed the day at an end. On the following morning, the thirteen prisoners started for Clinton Prison in the Adirondacks, leaving O'Connor and Van Steenburg behind to await the gallows. William Brisbane described the trip in two letters, one to a friend in Andes and the other to the schoolmaster Joseph Hogue. A confused noise of hurried footsteps mingled with the clanking of chains or shackles burst upon our ears, Clank went the bolts and in came Sheriff Moore, accompanied by a body of men with evident disappointment in their looks. They had expected ropes instead of shackles. In a few moments we were all shackled, two and two. I took an affecting leave of O'Connor, struggled into our wagon, and off we started for Clinton Prison. As we passed the crowd, Peter Wright stepped forward and shook hands with me and told me he did not think I was very guilty— I was struck with the warmth and generous sympathy that the people manifested towards us as we passed along. As the party wound slowly down the east wall of the mountain to Catskill in Greene County, Brisbane's mind was filled with tender and trying memories. Six years ago I was left in this little place by the rest of the Scottish families that came over with me, a stranger in a foreign land, a penniless and homeless wanderer, My heart began to swell as the recollections of those days crowded upon my memory. At last my eyes fell upon a little sheltered spot upon the creek side, where my wife and I used to visit on a Sunday to talk about our misfortunes. I thought I should see my wife, my children, there, but I looked in vain. The scene was a blank, and I was a shackled prisoner. I buried my face in the folds of my coat and wept as I remembered the past. I thought upon the present and trembled for the future. Streets and windows in Catskill were crowded. Many women wept. One of them, seized with a kind of frenzy, clapped her hands and cried, "'Down with the rent! Down with the rent!' Brisbane confessed that her words affected him very much like the sound of a musical instrument sadly out of tune. These were the fatal words, and the words fell heavily and dull upon my ears. They were my funeral dirge to a living tomb. Yet, he observed, the scene was as strangely ridiculous as it was solemn. The posse formed into a hollow square, with us terrible anti-renters in the center, while one solitary trumpeter rode at our head, playing that beautiful and patriotic air, old Dan Tucker. If ever there was a burlesque upon a Roman triumph, this was one." They spent the night in Catskill, and the next morning boarded a steamer for Albany. As we moved from the shore, I observed a young Scotchman among the crowd, who had visited me the night before, waving a handkerchief as a token of farewell. When we came into Albany, the steamboat was literally covered with people, all striving to get a sight of the anti-renters. It was curious to hear the remarks of the people as they turned away after getting a sight of us. "'Why, they're pretty decent-looking farmers. "'They ain't much like Indians. "'I don't see any hard-looking colts among them.' "'A boy screamed out, "'I say, what is an anti-renter?' "'Here they docked, and the sheriff went away, "'to return presently, with a man whom Brisbane described "'as one of the most Judas Iscariot-looking customers I ever saw. "'Sheriff Moore singled out Moses Earl as the victim.' and the newcomer showered him with abuse. During the harangue, wrote Brisbane, he said he had some sympathy for the rest of us. Good God, I thought, I am come low indeed when my situation demands such a ruffian's sympathy. If there had been a Billingsgate College in Albany, I could almost have sworn he was its professor. Old Mr. Earle sat and stared into his professor's face like one bewildered. The prisoners were finally taken to the Albany jail, where there was another rush of visitors. Brisbane and his comrade in shackles sat down upon their cell floor and sang My Native Caledonia, upon which a fellow at the door growled, You're a happy soul. And you must be a miserable soul, retorted Brisbane, to make yourself miserable because you see your fellow man happy. By this time they were getting hungry— having breakfasted early that morning before they left Catskill. A man who was brought up and introduced as the sheriff told them they would get something to eat presently. About an hour afterwards, a colored man came along with a basin in each hand. He opened the door a little, apparently with a kind of tremulous fear, and pitched two pieces of something out of each basin into the cell. I picked up two pieces of my share— One of them I made out to be some affinity of bread. The other baffled my skill to find out its nature. I handed it to my companion and asked if it was beef or Honduras mahogany. I tried it with my teeth, but could make no impression upon it. I then tried it upon my knife, but it was still no go, so I gave it up in despair and called it rather hard feed. Our waiter came at length with our water, but such water— It was as red and muddy as our brooks in a spring freshet. Would to God it had been as sweet. To our palate it tasted like Epsom salts mixed with wormwood. All the furniture in our cell was a couple of coarse blankets, two bricks, and a basin. I could see use for everything except the bricks. Whether they were left for the purpose of some life-sick prisoner to knock out his brains, I cannot tell. But seeing that they were there, I thought I would turn them to some useful purpose. So I gave one to my comrade and kept one myself, and we used them as pillows. Sometime in the night we were waked up by some persons at our cell door with a lantern. They asked tauntingly what we were guilty of, then finally gave us some abusive language and left. They were respectably dressed men. How it comes, I cannot tell you— but my mind was strongly impressed with the idea that Governor Wright was one of them. I mentioned this to Sheriff Moore the next day, but he gave me no answer. The night, but such a night, passed, and the anti-renters were given their breakfast coffee in their basins. The coffee was so execrable we could not drink it, Brisbane commented. That morning the prisoners were smuggled through the back streets toward Troy. Some time later, they arrived at Whitehall, Washington County, where they were permitted to write letters to be delivered by Sheriff Moore, who virtually dictated the contents by warning the men that their only hope for freedom lay in using their influence to stop anti-rent activity. People universally tell us that if the anti-renters keep within the law, Brisbane wrote in one of his letters, and show an honest determination to maintain the law, that a pardon may ultimately be obtained. Now I hope you will exercise both your judgment and your influence with the people. He urged that the terms up-rent and down-rent be forever buried, and the old and united name of the people applied, instead of the factious name of up-and-down-renter. Daniel Squires wrote a similar letter. I think the better way will be for you to hold meetings and dissolve all your associations that have had any connections with the Indians, he said. People think generally that if such should take place, there will be something done for us. Weary and jaded after wearing chains for a week, the anti-renters reached Clinton Prison on Saturday. The shackles were struck from their limbs, rather in an unceremonious manner, Brisbane remarked. The head-keeper never stopped to inquire whether our legs or shackles were iron, for he hammered away as if both were of the same material. We then put on our striped dress of degradation. We were shown to our bedroom. It was a long, narrow building with a row of beds, rather like kennels, on each side of it, with an alley up the center. On each side of the alley ran an immense chain which extended the whole length of the hall. To these chains were attached smaller ones with a shackle at the end of them. These shackles were most ardently attached to the legs. I thought it one of the hardest sights I had yet seen to see about two hundred human beings chained to their beds. They soon found that life in Clinton prison was scarcely the solitude and thought that Daniel Squires had expected. It consisted of hard, unending labor— laying walls, digging excavations, and mining iron. The rugged mountains surrounding the prison reminded Brisbane of his native Scotland, so beautiful, indeed, that even my scathed and burning heart would sometimes bound with joy as I listened to the eloquent voice of nature. He described one autumn morning in Danamora as follows, The sun was scarcely risen, and the teams had not yet arrived to begin the labors of the day. I turned my eyes toward the south, and that I often did, for there lay the magnet that drew my heart. Lake Champlain lay stretched out before me. I thought that I could discern the faint flicker of a sail skimmering on its peaceful bosom in the grayness of the morning. It resembled one of Ossian's ghosts, which he described as floating on the gray mists of the hills. Yes, there lay that beautiful lake and as the rosy fingers of morn began to play over its glassy surface, in my moment of rapture I compared her to a beautiful and blushing bride locked in the arms of her husband. The lazy clouds hung heavy upon the mountain tops, while toward the east the land sunk toward a hollow, while the clouds above it were tinged with a gorgeous drapery that I cannot describe. The gap in the mountain seemed as if aurora had burst through the clouds, and gracefully folded up the drapery of night, and thus made a triumphal gateway for the glorious god of day to pass. The vision of Mirza that I used to read with so much pleasure at school came vividly to my recollections, and like Mirza I felt my heart chastened and my mind elevated by the enchanting scene before me. But I was soon roused from this moralizing. "'Brisbane, your carts are awaiting you!' The curtain fell on this fancy panorama. As I turned away from it, my eye fell on the grated windows of my prison and finally rested on my striped dress of degradation. Prison work had its dangers. Daniel Northrup was caught in a slide and seriously injured, and had it not been for Dr. Boughton's skill, he would hardly have recovered. Even in prison, the anti-renters looked to the doctor as their leader— and he was always ready to stand by them. Once Brisbane was ordered to work on one of the high walls of a new building. He told the guard it would be unsafe, because he was subject to dizziness even at small heights. But the officer drove him off in the most insulting tones. Brisbane protested angrily at such tyranny. When I cooled down a little, he wrote of the incident, I saw my danger, but I was not coolly to submit to be flogged. That was an indignity I was determined not to submit to. So I went down to the hospital, told Dr. Boughton what I had said and my fears. "'Well,' said Boughton, "'if they punish one, they will have us all to punish.' But on the whole, they were model prisoners. Early in November, the newspapers reported that the anti-renters at Clinton Prison deport themselves with great propriety and are very orderly and quiet.' In Delhi jail, Edward O'Connor and John Van Steenburgh nursed their courage as the day of execution crowded upon them. John was bewildered and introspective, but Edward was somewhat bolstered by the sense of being part of a heroic struggle, and by his resolution to go to the gallows true to his principles. Still mourning for Janet Scott, who is dearer to me than life, he wrote some verses— which commenced in an apostrophe to freedom, still my chief delight, and ended as a love-song with the following verse. In midnight dreams and morning's prayers, she's always present, always there, first earthly great desire. Her beauteous form and humble mien, so rarely found, so rarely seen, lights all my soul with fire. When Edward's twenty-sixth birthday arrived on October 17th, he celebrated it by writing what he planned as his farewell to the world. "'Sore, sore is my heart when I think of the night, so dark and so lonely, so gloomy the sight. But little I thought I should never see more, my fond, my sweet Janet, the girl I adore. So fondly I pressed her soft bosom to mine, I loved her so dearly, she was almost divine. But when we parted—' What prophet could tell I was bidding my fair one forever farewell? What tongue or what pen can my feelings express To think of my loved one in keenest distress? My blood rushes through me and makes my heart swell To write my fond one farewell, oh, farewell. Oh, well, I remember the simple fond strain. When we parted, she asked, when shall we meet again? Our tears intermingled, and swiftly they fell. But, oh, we were taking our final farewell. O Father in heaven, it is my desire, and ever shall be my humblest prayer, that Thou mayst protect her, our parents as well. I send her my fondest, my lasting farewell. At the end of the verses, Edward made an advance notation, Presented to my friends to preserve as a memorial for him who died in his country's cause, November twenty ninth, 1845, aged 26 on 17th October, 1845, Freedom's willing son bleeds free, though scourged and slain for liberty, Edward O'Connor. End of Section 18. Recording by Maria Casper.